do chapter one in a series I've wanted to do for quite some time called Grace in Perspective. Or the series is called Grace Upon Grace, I'm sorry. And um, we'll be looking at a verse in John 1.16 that's uh, the basis of this series, Grace Upon Grace, quite a bit as we go. And uh, today's message is chapter one, Grace in Perspective, subtitled The Importance and Meaning of Grace. So again, Grace Upon Grace is the name of the series. Uh, the series will be six chapters. Today is chapter one, Grace in Perspective, The Importance and Meaning of Grace. Each chapter, you'll have to follow this a little bit, will take two Sundays to record because we're going to keep them at 40 minutes and uh, therefore two, will, uh, two Sunday messages will be one chapter on one CD so this, is, uh, this will actually take 12 Sundays to teach, which is just under one quarter of a year. And I'm going to start by reading uh, what you have listed there in Roman numeral 1 as your series theme verses. And I'm also going to, to uh, uh, read a little bit from today's scripture readings that you'll be hearing during the regular service. Let's start with uh, John 1, 14 through 18, which is from the scripture readings today, and it's a little more complete than what you have on your outline. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace... For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now the him is in italics there, meaning they've added it to make the English better. Some translations, you read New King James, NIV, different things will say he has declared him, he has revealed him. Uh, so... Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 8, which is, again, not on your outline. It actually is down a little bit further down toward the bottom of the page on your outline, if you want to follow it there. It says, Blessed be the Lord, I'm sorry, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Most of you will probably recognize, besides the word grace appearing uh, several times in that passage, several grace concepts that he chose us, he predestined us for adoption into his family, and uh, those kind of things are contained in those verses. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 7, 6, and 8, which uh, is also in today's scripture readings, although I'm just going to read what's on your page. The one from the scripture readings during the service is a little bit longer portion of the same chapter. But that is, uh, for you are a holy people, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people 
that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, hopefully you recognize grace in this. They weren't chosen because uh, they were more in number or or any other reason that would endear God to them. They were chosen by God's free, merciful, eternal predestined plan of grace. Uh, and, and he extended covenant to them and so forth as you read, read the rest of the chapter. So um, with that, I'm just going to quickly give us the six titles that this will be. Uh, section one will be the first three chapters. And section one is called Grace Reexamined. And that will be take us six weeks. Uh, chapter one is grace and perspective, the importance and meaning of grace, which is what we're doing today. Chapter two is called grace plus theologies. And we're going to look at the, the concept of sola gratia uh, versus the foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, uh, who has deceived you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now perfecting yourself in the flesh? So grace plus theologies, chap- chapter three is growing in grace. Grace is a relational word, and as such, you can grow in grace all of your Christian life, just like you can grow in any relationship as long as you still have breath and still have a chance to to be together. Uh, That growing in grace is subtitled Attitudes and Actions for Appropriating Greater Grace. What is it we can do by the grace of God, (laughs) which is uh, ironic, to, uh, to posture our lives in our heart to acquire more grace. And uh, section two, which will be chapters four, five, and six, and will also be six weeks, that'll be weeks seven through 12, is uh, grace delivered, the word of his grace. Chapter five, grace delivered the spirit of grace. And chapter six, grace delivered the people of grace. What we're gonna see is that God brings us grace through the person of Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit through del- through a delivery system. And just like water, when you turn it on in the spigot in your house, comes out because of a very complex delivery system that we seldom think about, uh, God has a delivery system to bring us grace. And understanding uh, how to use that delivery system can help us grow in grace. Now, there's an epilogue and an appendix, which we may or may not share on a Sunday morning, uh, I, I partly did this because I'm hoping to also turn this into a book on grace. So let's get into today's message, Grace and Perspective, the Importance and Meaning of Grace, by starting with the importance of grace. Uh, grace is a central theme of all scripture. If you look at the Hebrew definitions on the back of page two of your, of your outline, you'll see the number of times the word for grace is listed in various portions of scripture. Now, in the Old Testament, there's actually uh, several words for grace. I chose the most common one, and the Hebrew word I can't really pronounce. It's something like chin. Uh, it, it actually requires that being able to kind of, uh, how the Hebrews do with, uh, with the CH sound, kind of roll some, uh, some scratchiness in your throat with a little bit of R mixed in there. Uh, but it means favor, grace, or acceptance. It appears 69 times in the King James Version of the Bible. 
The Greek words for grace, I actually included two. The main word is the word, um, and again, we used to belong to a church that we called Charis Community, which is a butchering of the pronunciation, and, and, and some people you'll hear say charis. Neither are right, because again, it's, the, it's a Greek word that would be very hard for English-speaking people to form because it would be something like hey, charis. Well, I can't even get close to it. Charis. Um, if you ever want to hear how these words are pronounced, there's a nice Bible tool uh, called Blue Letter Bible. And not only can you look up the Greek, but they actually have a little thing you click on and you hear the guy pronounce it. And he's, he's amazing at how good he is. Of course, obviously, they using a professional to, uh, to uh, say very difficult to say words. So... Uh, is, um appears, we'll look at the definition m- more in a minute, but it appears 156 times. So think that through a little bit. That's an average of uh, six times per book of the New Testament. And that's all the way from the longer books, like 28 chapters of Matthew, to the shorter books that are one chapter. But it's an average of six times per book of the Bible. Um or uh, more than one time for every two chapters, about one time for every chapter and two-thirds. So it's obviously a pretty important concept. More importantly than the number of times it appears in the Bible, I always think, um, you know, that's actually kind of not that great a principle of hermeneutics, but there is a principle that basically nothing that's super important in, in Christian thinking and theology is just spoken of in one obscure verse that you can look at out of context. It's usually repeated over and over and over because God uses repetition to teach us his heart and his ways. Repetition is the key to learning. And so that's why we're to meditate on the scriptures over and over and over again. And and uh, that's why we take the Lord's Supper every week, That's uh, etc. So um, it is one indication that it's important that it appears a lot, but a, a, a second reason is that is our theme verse in John 1, 16 and 17. It says grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. But the word for realized there is a very difficult word to translate. It usually is translated grace and truth came or arrived or came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the main uh reason that grace is important is because Jesus Christ is grace. He's the author of grace. He's the fountain of grace. He's the uh, delivery system for grace. He's the sender of grace. He's the finisher of grace in our life. Uh, He is grace. And so grace is first and foremost knowing Jesus Christ. And so grace is a central theme because Jesus is the gracious one. Uh, Psalm 45 uh, uh, prophetically speaking of Jesus coming in the future, talks about how grace is on your lips and so forth. Um, now, grace, uh, furthermore, was the critical issue of the Reformation. Uh, sometimes when you first start studying Reformation history, you might actually think that, uh, say, sola scriptura, getting back to the authority of scripture, was the critical uh, thing. But the thing that sparked the Reformation was after Thomas Aquinas' scholastic theology of the 14th century, the church fell into a very performance-based approach to salvation that lacked grace totally. And um, it became so performance-based that the, the doctrine became 
that a doctrine called purgatory uh, was was established. That doctrine had existed for five centuries before, but it really hadn't gained a lot of support, you might say, in people's hearts and minds. But the idea of purgatory is is kind of necessitated by a works theology because what it basically admits is I could never appear before God righteous. You know, I, I don't like myself. Like, you know, we when we minister to people some days, uh, a lot of people are growing up in a kind of a fundamentalist tradition that's that's rampant right now that is very performance-based. And so you, you're, you, you, your focus gets on you and your performance and you always feel condemned and or self-righteous or both, and you're always looking at you. And, and the idea is, is for God to, to liberate us to look at him. One of the scripture readings today is for when, when God told Moses to put a, a serpent on the pole and those who looked away from the fiery serpents that were biting them and looked to the fiery serpent on the pole, which is a foreshadowing of Christ, uh, were saved. You know, that grace and salvation begins when God moves in your life to begin to look at him and to trust in him and, uh, and not, to, not to trust in our own ability to perfect ourselves. And so performance-based Christianity became so deeply ingrained in the church that um, the fact that we're saved by grace through faith became the issue that sparked uh, wars, falling and rising of kings, it, it sparked the entire Reformation. Um, sola gracia, that were saved by grace alone, became the first of five solas that John has taught us on during the Reformation time. And as we get go through this series, what I want us to see is there are two errors when it comes to performance versus grace. One is that performance leads to acceptance or favor or grace. That it, I, can, I can study harder, read more chapters, give more. Uh, or what, and, and people come up with various schemes. What, when, you add, uh, when you add to performance base a thing called antinomianism, that is where you don't value the law of God, which has become a, a very rampant since the Civil War in American Christianity, then you make up your own righteousness. That, you know, like Jesus saves and Jesus shaves. <laughs> Actually, people believe that. Uh, like that grace is about like a woman never wears makeup and and uh, to be righteous before God, you have to have a certain haircut or a certain hairstyle or, or uh, you have to jump through this hoop or that hoop. And, and, and many of the performance-based things become not even related to Scripture at all, just cultural norms. Like, uh, and it's very common in, in performance-based thinking for people to say, like think, oh, smoking a cigarette or a cigar and drinking wine is the greatest sin ever. Oh, it's terrible, but it's okay to sleep around. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it causes your thinking to become totally askew when you add performance-based thinking to antinomian or anti-law thinking. But nevertheless, people who still have, have pro-law thinking, which is very typical, uh, especially of old-line Roman Catholics. I was raised Roman Catholic. There's an old joke. I was raised Catholic. I can feel guilty about anything. We're actually brought up on the law. And we, by the time we're young, second, third, or fourth grade, we realize on a black marks, red marks scheme of performance, I've got so many black marks, I might as well just give up. I remember actually thinking that around second grade. I might as well just forget it. <laughs> I'm so far behind, I'm never catching up. And uh, 
performance-based will always lead you to self-condemnation and self-righteousness. That's why people don't want to give up performance-based because it's deep in the heart of sinful man to want to stand in our own pride, in our own self-righteousness. And no matter how much we're struggling with it, we want to get there. Grace, you have to just give up. And you just have to receive his grace and say, Lord, there's not one thing I can do to commend myself to you. Clothe me with the righteousness of Christ. And you begin to worship him. He becomes all your righteousness. And therefore, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for religious pride. Now, the other extreme that people make a mistake on in grace is that because it's by grace alone that grace does not lead to a change of heart, a change of character, a change of lifestyle. Grace, that, But see, because grace is in the person of Jesus Christ, grace will always lead to Christ-likeness. And Christ was the fulfillment of the law, so it will always lead to respecting the law and, and living by the law. However, the law becomes our inner desire and passion, not an outward thing commanding us from tablets of, of stone, but an inward thing written on tablets of human hearts as we desire to love him, please him, and, and walk with him. But grace brings about works. It's very important that you, that you understand that works will never bring about grace. But true grace produces works. And so the other error that people fall into, and this is also common in antinomian thinking, is that because I've received grace, I can just live like the devil. <laughs> and, uh, and that's an indication that you actually haven't received grace. I can just live in rebellion to God, however I want, do whatever I want, when I want, how I want, and I, I am my own Lord. Grace will set you free from being your own Lord and begin give you the inner desire to make Jesus your Lord and begin to empower you to, to, to walk toward that in a sanctifying, maturing walk. Isn't that exciting? Grace should be, a, when, you, when, you, when you hear grace in your spirit, it should set you free. All right, so grace, the importance of grace is more than just the number of times it, 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 in the scripture, but it's actually kind of the battle throughout the centuries. If you go back to Augustine versus Pelagius, it's the battle for thinking rightly about God. Paul, Paul talking in Romans 9 and 10 about the Israelites in chapter 10, he says about the Israelites that were rejecting Christ and were, were in the process that Jesus had talked about where Jerusalem was going to be surrounded and so forth, and God was taking away the kingdom, as Jesus said in Matthew, from them, and he was establishing the church and giving it to a nation, producing the fruit of it. And, and Paul talking about those perishing lost Israelites who were being cut off from the branch of God, from the, from the root of God. They were being cut off of the tree. Uh, Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They go to church. They go to synagogue. They, you know, they, uh, they have these all sorts of, uh, they, they have lots of Christian music. They have lots of whatever Christian trappings, but they have lots of the outward signs of loving God and righteousness, but not in accordance with knowledge, Paul says. For not knowing about, which is the, the word for experiential knowledge, not uh, understanding intellectually and experiencing God's righteousness, they seek to establish their own. 
And when you seek to establish your own righteousness, as Paul will see as we study Galatians as part of this series, you've cut yourself off from grace. You, you, that, you know, people hear the word fallen from grace and they think of someone who fell into some sin or whatever. Falling from grace is to, is to live in a performance-based approach to God so that all that can come out of your life is self-congratulations and self-condemnation. And so you, you become harsh toward it. One of the ways you'll know whether you have grace is how well you tip <laughs> and how generous you are. I uh, just read a thing from a, a pastor friend, some of you know him, Pastor Doug Rowe, on his, on his uh, Facebook late, late last night. Uh, you know, um, my daughter is a wait, waitress and manager at Steak and Shake, and uh, there was actually an incident one time where a particular Christian organization that has their annual conference at the Dayton Convention Center where their leaders of their churches come for uh, six or seven states around, and uh, they're, they're known for being antinomian and very uh, performance-based and so forth, not, not known for grace. Uh, they actually came into the restaurant without, uh, without letting anyone know in advance that they were bringing around 90 people all at once, were very upset that there wasn't enough uh, waitresses to, to serve them fast, and decided in the middle... To, uh, after they finished their food, of course, <laughs> they decided that they were going to leave without paying their bill. After, uh, after the six or seven people who were in the restaurant hustled the most they'd ever hustled for like a, an hour and a half to try to pull this off, uh, one old lady said, this is unacceptable. This is not Christian excellence and, and so forth and, and uh, left without paying their bill. Not, and uh, if you ask anyone in the waiter or waitress business, Christians are the worst tippers. Most waiters and waitresses don't like to work the Sunday after church uh, uh, shift because that's when all the Christians go to church and they're the worst tippers, which shows that we have no grace in our heart. Free, Jesus said, freely you were given, freely give. Okay, what you know, I would recommend, by the way, and this is what I do, and I'm not trying to hold myself up as a standard, but what I try to do is tip about 20% if the service is really bad and around 40 to 50% if the service is good. You know why? Because they're all underpaid. One time I went to a restaurant, Pizza Hut, just to read, and I didn't order any food. I just had an orange, and I ordered maybe a tea or coffee or something because you have to buy something to use the bed. I was just there to read. And this one family was really giving this waitress a hard time and and uh you know just terrible and of course they they left without any tip and uh and so I you know I gave her a ten dollar tip on the way out (laughs) even though I ordered a tea but uh you know grace begets grace one of the ways you can tell if grace is in your heart is if you're gracious now grace is not devoid from truth that's the other error that's become so common in our culture is that we think grace means the acceptance of all ideas and all behaviors and all character issues and all attitudes all the time just give you praise and, and encouragement no matter what you do. That's not grace either. Grace it is mixed with truth. Grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ, but it's mixed with, with the acceptance and the empowerment to live truth. When Jesus, uh, if you read over and over in the, again in the Gospels, when Jesus looks at the adulterous woman and he says, go your way, neither do I condemn you, go your way, sin no more, 
it, you can tell from the text that those people left and said no more. They got, they got, they got converted in the encounter with Christ. All right, so let's move on to uh, sevenfold uh, working definition of grace, which we will spend uh, the rest of the uh, 12 or 13 minutes we have today on, and then we will uh, pick that up again next week as my part B of chapter one, you might say. We're going to look at a sevenfold working definition of grace. Now, grace, uh, as we read in Deuteronomy about God choosing them, if you've been going to right state, uh, we meetings, uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom, we've been emphasizing Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 a lot. We've, we've spent weeks on those verses, and I have Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 printed as uh, uh, one of the theme verses. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Now, that is the most popular Sunday school definition. Interestingly, uh, currently, because of you know things grow and change in the church and one movement uh, affects another, if, if you went to a Protestant or a Catholic Sunday school catechism curriculum, you would hear that definition of grace. Grace is undeserved, you might call it, or unmerited favor. You can't earn it. God chooses to give it to you. That's the popular definition currently. And I want, you to, I want you to be very firm on this. It's a true definition. It's a true partial definition. Um, who can I pick on? I'll pick on Lisa today. If, uh, if, if I were to say Lisa's wearing a very nice flowered um, sweater, that would be true. But that wouldn't take into account that she's wearing a white turtleneck and glasses, and I can't see what, what color pants she has on or shoes or socks, but she's, she's a lot more than a sweater. The sweater's true, but there's a lot more to the story, right? And that's really kind of what, if, as you approach grace, grace is uh, God's choosing you for no reason other than he can. There wasn't... We most of us, until we get firmly established in the truths of the gospel, we think God shows us because that we're Christians because we're a little better than other people, or we were raised in the right family. Well, it was God's grace to put you in the family that helped you come to Christ. There was nothing in you that caused God to choose you, except God is immutable, He's sovereign, and He's completely free in his attributes, meaning he's not influenceable by anything. Current events, Satan, demons, uh, heaven, hell, angels, principalities, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. God, those whom God chooses, he will draw to his kingdom. And nothing will separate. Jesus said, of all those the Father God gave me, I lost not one. And nothing can separate you from the love of God, Romans 8 teaches us from verses 28 through the end of the chapter. Isn't that awesome? Now, there are some verses about that in Ephesians 1 as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ's heavenly places, chose us, there's a key word, uh, so we could become holy and blameless. You could never be holy and blameless unless he chose to give it to you. He predestined us to adoption. Now, one of the key things about adoption, I don't want to do a whole series on Ephesians, so I have to be quick here. 
But one of the beautiful truths about adoption, I love when I hear a Christian family is adopting, if they're going halfway across the world to adopt. God is a father to the fatherless, and he doesn't just do it in some abstract way, direct by his spirit. He does it through the church. And uh, one of the great truths of the Bible in the Old Testament, carried through the New, uh, you can even see it in the lineage of Christ, the... um, when someone was adopted, they had full membership, rights, privileges, obligations, and responsibilities. Everything that applied to the covenant of that family applied to that adopted person. It was against God's law to, to slight your adopted children in the inheritance as opposed to what your natural-born children were. An adopted child is every bit as much of a son and daughter of God as uh, someone born into it. And the, one of the reasons that's a desperately wonderful truth is because we were all adopted into the family of God. If you read the rest of Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, which everyone stops in verse 10, the rest of the chapter from verse 11 through 22 is all about that you weren't a people and you were grafted into the people of God and you were made living stones in his temple, and you were made part of his family and part of his household. You have all the natural-born rights of the firstborn son. Christ is the firstborn of all creation, which doesn't mean he was actually firstborn. That means he's the heir of all the creation, and he's chosen to dump that on you. You're, Davion, the heir of all creation. You will judge angels. Because you deserve so? No, because he chose. He predestined us. Um, and that, then he goes on about the kind intention of his will. It's according to his predetermined will. He's free in his will to do so. And then again mentions grace, that he lavished it on us, and so forth. I want you to focus on that one little line that's underlying freely bestowed on us. We're going to look at that on, when we flip over. Uh, but, it's, but it's the same word that the angel, it only appears twice in the New Testament, in this passage and in Luke, when the angel says to Mary that uh, hail much favored one. God has, is what he is, what Paul is saying to the saints of God in the church of God is that you are the much favored of the Lord in the exact same status as the, as Mary, the mother of God. If you have any rejection problems, think on that a little bit. <laughs> uh, John, that's what God is saying to you. Hail, much favored one. I, it, I'm so amazed at how, pop, how popular humanistic psychology has gotten to the point where Christians over and over think their life is determined by what they were before they came to Christ. And my mother bit me when I was five and the sun was in my eyes and I was left on a doorstep. I, you know, it, none of it matters. If anyone's in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. If you begin to look to Christ and believe in Christ, if your facts about the gospel lead you instead of being feelings. One of the things that the TV and, and lots of things, immaturity and lots of things have tried try to warp you into being a feelings-oriented person where you're always trapped in this little selfish world about how you feel and your anger problems or your depression problems. It can take on different manifestations 
Some people it'll be more angry. Some people it'll be more depression and, and self-condemnation because they say that depression is just anger turned inward. But that's all because you're still looking at you. Start to worship him. Start to thank him for the facts of the gospel. Memorize hundreds of gospel scriptures and use them as the basis of your out loud thanksgiving and praise. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the old song says. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go, grow strangely dim, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And then, you know, when Philippians 4.13, when Paul says, I can do all things, he doesn't stop there. That would be heresy. He says, through Christ who strengthens me. And you can tell a mature Christian from a, from a baby Christian, not by how many years they've been in the church, but a mature Christian, the emphasis is on through Christ who strengthens me. A baby Christian's emphasis is on I can do all things. A mature Christian, their emphasis is on through Christ who strengthens me. All right, grace, uh, let's look at a little bit at these Hebrew words real quick. Uh, chen means favor, grace, acceptance. It appears uh, lots of times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 84, the Lord will give grace and glory. Um, Greek, the word charis, uh, which is key, alpha, rho, uh, iota, and sigma, uh, means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, grace of speech, goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. Now, if you notice, that's the first half of the definition we gave. That was part A, unmerited favor. But the rest of the definitions we're going to get into next week will show us the rest of it. It's the merciful kindness by which God, exerting or granting his holy influence upon our human souls, us, turns them to Christ keeps them in Christ, strengthens them in Christ, increases them in Christ, grows their faith, grows their knowledge, both intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge, grows their love or affection for God we love because he first loved us, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian character, virtues, and deeds. Grace is empowerment. That's what we're going to look focus on and look at more. As you grow in grace, you will actually have the ability to be sanctified. Sins that, that you might have struggled with 17 years, God will still break them and set you free. God can change anything and anyone by grace. So, um, that, that is so important. Now, the last part of charis is thanksgiving. And, that's, and it's the root of the word we get Eucharist from, which is the giving thanks not for just anything, though. What do we do in remembrance of him? We remember that he became a man, that he lived a sinless life, that he faced every temptation yet without sin, that he freely gave his life for ours in exchange, that he was tortured, beaten, rejected, and faced every human problem and temptation of all time, was, that, he, that he was buried that seed, his body was sowed like a seed in the ground, that it germinated again and was resurrected, and that he ascended and lives at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning with all authority in his heart until he shall come again to establish his kingdom perfectly, and it shall grow in, in, in 
size, and it shall grow in quality, and it shall grow in, in influence all the way up until he comes back. That's what we do in remembrance of him in the Eucharist, which means the grace, the giving of thanks for grace. So, um, lastly, I want to look at one Greek word that we already talked about, so we'll be quick on this, and then we'll stop there. Kurito, kuritao, is, uh, is a derivative of, of, of charis, and it means to make highly favored, accepted, or honored with blessings, to bless to, to a point of honor. You know, you, put, you bestow a certain kind of honor on a king. You know, if... if uh, Someone uh, like if Barack Obama was coming over to your house for dinner or George Bush or whatever your political persuasion is or the Queen of England, you probably would put out better than paper plates. You might even clean. Uh, you know, I want to, uh, you know, uh, we struggled with four kids and jobs and church life to, all, to do as much cleaning. We used to try to have at least one guest come a, a month because it made us clean the whole house, you know, when the kids were young. It, it, you, you favor an honored person. In fact, what the part of the, what it means to mature in Christ is to treat the lowliest of your brothers and sisters. That's what the Kids Rock House thing is all about. That's what Plus Ministries is all about. It's to treat the hurting, needy. It's to treat the people the world wouldn't treat well. The disenfranchised, the marginalized, the, the, those of, of educational disadvantage and sociological disadvantage and economic disadvantage, bro, people of broken homes, people the world would judge and, and keep in the periphery of their life. It's to pour our lives into them as, as potential kings, princes, kings, queens, princesses of God. That's grace. And that's what the, the angel says to Mary when he says, Hail Mary, full of grace. And uh, Ephesians 1.6, when it talks about freely bestowed in the New American Standard, which is translated in the New King James, by which he made us accepted, or in the English Standard, is by blessed. Now, next week, we'll look at grace is covenant. Repentance is granted by grace, and grace has always produced fruit and works. Grace is divine empowerment. And uh, we'll look at grace is relationship. And we'll look at the, the whole title of this series, Grace Upon Grace.